Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 22, Leviticus chapters 14 and 15. We've been dealing with a rather complex subject of Sarat. And the principle behind Sarat is that it's caused by an act of God whereby the Lord determines that he wants to make visible an evil or unclean spiritual condition of a person. We even see it applied to cloth and to leather. Sarat is explicitly a spiritual disease. Starting with verse 33, Leviticus 14 deals with Sarat on a house. So let's reread um, a short portion of uh, Levit- Leviticus 14 to get started today. Open up your Bibles to Leviticus 14, chap- uh, Leviticus 14, verse 33, and we're going to read it to the end. Leviticus 14. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, When you have entered the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as a possession, and I put an infection of Zarat in a house in the land that you possess, then the owner of that house is to come and tell the Kohen, the priest. It seems to me that there may be an infection in the house. And the Kohen is to order the house emptied before he goes in to inspect the infection so that everyone in the house won't be made unclean. Afterwards, the priest is to enter and inspect the house. He'll examine the infection and see if he sees that the infection is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish depressions that seem to go in deeper than the surface of the wall, he's to go out of the house to its door and seal up the house for seven days. The priest will come again on the seventh day and examine the house. If he sees that the infection is spread over its walls, he's to order them to remove those infected stones and throw them into some unclean place outside the city. Next, he's to have the inside of the house thoroughly scraped. And the scraped off plaster is to be discarded outside the city in an unclean place. Finally, other stones must be set in the place of the first stones and other plaster used to replaster the house. If the infection returns and breaks out in the house after the stones have been removed and the house scraped and plastered, then the priest is to enter and examine it. If he sees that the infection is spread in the house, it is a contagious serot in the house. It is unclean. He must break down the house and take its stones, timber and plaster, out of the city to an unclean place. Moreover, whoever enters that house at any time while it is sealed up will be unclean until evening. Whoever lies down or eats in that house must wash his clothes. If the priest enters, examines, and sees that the infection has not spread in the house since it was plastered, then he is to declare the house clean because the infection is cured. To purify the house, he is to take two birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and oregano leaves. He is to slaughter one of the birds in a clay pot over running water. He is to take the cedar wood, the oregano, the scarlet yarn, and the live bird and dip them in the blood of the slaughtered bird in the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. He will purify the house with the blood of the bird, the running water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the oregano, and the scarlet yarn, but he is to set the live bird free outside the city in an open field. Thus he will make atonement for the house and it will be clean. Such is the law for all kinds of sarat sores, for a crusted area, for sarat in a garment, 
for a house, for a swelling, for a scab, for a bright spot to determine when it's clean and when it's unclean. This is the law concerning Sarat. As is made clear in verse 34, it is Yehovah who puts this plague on somebody's house. For God says, when I place an infection, uh, an affection, try that again, when I place an affliction on your house in the land. Now, this is a punishment for a transgression of some sort against God, just as Sarat on a human is a divine judgment. Naturally, dealing with this disease on a house was very similar to dealing with skin disease on a person. First, if a greenish or a reddish discoloration is discovered on a wall, it has to be reported to a priest. It's the priest who will make the determination whether or not it's Sarat. And if the priest suspects Sarat of the house, he puts that house into quarantine for seven days. And after seven days, the priest returns and re-inspects the house. And if the discoloration has spread, then it's declared Sarat. To eradicate the disease, those stones that made up that house have to be removed. They're put outside the camp into a special place. They're placed in an unclean place. In addition, since most houses were made of stones or mud brick with a, then a layer of mud used like plaster applied over those stones and bricks to waterproof it, that mud plaster had to be scraped off around that discolored area and then it too had to be placed outside the camp in an unclean place. The diseased stones were to be replaced with new ones and then replastered. But if after some time the path, uh, time passes and the affliction again comes back to the house, pretty much anywhere on the house, it's deemed to be an acute case of Surat. And the house must be demolished. The remains of the house are then transported outside the camp to an unclean place and they're deposited there forever. Now, somebody enters the house during the period of his quarantine, that person becomes unclean. But it's not of a very serious nature. He doesn't become afflicted with Sarat as a result. He's simply unclean until sunset. What's so important about sunset? It ends the day. In Hebrew, day day begins and ends at sunset. So it's the end of the day. And if a person enters the house and he lies down in that house, or he eats inside that infected house, then in addition to having to wait until sunset, the end of the day, to become clean again, he has to wash his garments. Because he has a slightly higher level of impurity. Now, over the course of centuries, several questions regarding details about determining Sarah surfaced. For instance, how large did a discolored area called a nega, N-E-G-A, in Hebrew, have to be in order for it to be considered a problem? It was determined that a discolored spot on a wall had to be at least twice the size of a qualifying neha on a person's skin or on a person's garment in order for it to be considered sarat. The Mishnah states that the neha must be the size of two grisen, or by modern measure, about the size of a penny. Further, the discoloration, the neha, must appear on two of the building's stones. 
Another consideration was the color. Did it have to be all green or all red? No, it could be a combination of colors. Now notice some of the similarities between treating Sarat on a house and Sarat on a person. If an eruption occurs, it is the priest who is called to make that determination. If it's not blatantly clear that it is Sarat, then a quarantine is called for for a period of seven days. If it is Sarat, then the affected object, be it a building stone or a human, is declared unclean and they must be put outside the camp into a designated unclean place. Part of the treatment for Sarat is that the surface of whatever the object is must be scraped off. The hair of a person has to be scraped off, right? a razor. So, likewise, the mud plaster on a building has to be scraped off. Point being, the pattern for dealing with Sarat on a person or on a house or on a garment or a leather object remains the same. And that shouldn't surprise us very much by about now. So, as we see in verse 49, in order to decontaminate the house, meaning the stones and the mud plaster was removed, but the house was not destroyed, okay, we again use that same formula just for the purification of a person. And it involves this ritual using a pair of clean birds, hyssop or oregano, okay, scarlet dye, and cedar wood. And the blood of one of the birds is placed into a bowl that has maim chaim, living water, in it, and the mixture is sprinkled onto the house seven times. The live bird is then set free, and the house is now clean. Now the chapter ends without there being any offering of sacrifices. Now remember that the slaying of that bird is not a sacrifice. It's, it's a different classification of ritual killing. So why aren't there any sacrifices offered for the house? As I showed you over the past several weeks, there is this process for being purified from a defiled state, from an unclean condition, back into a state of cleanness. And then from cleanness, a person can be made holy by means of some blood sacrifices. But since a house has no requirement to be holy, only clean, no sacrifices are needed for a house. Holy is not a necessary state for a house. Okay, because it's never going to be in communion with God. The bird, living water, hyssop, scarlet, cedar wood, that whole procedure is all that's needed. Now, a very reasonable question to ask at this point is, does Sarat still happen? In fact, it's generally agreed by rabbis that it does not. All right, at least outwardly. And they assume this according to their observation. In other words, they've observed that there's not been any known cases of Sarat for centuries. Now, naturally, they're puzzled by this as well. Okay? There, there's a variety of reasons offered by Jewish sages as to the possible reasons for this. And the one that's the most accepted is that they don't have Sarat anymore because there's no temple. Since there's no temple, there's no priesthood. Without a priesthood to discern um, whether 
it's Zarat or not. And there's no priesthood to perform the cleansing and tonesing rituals. And without a temple, there's no place to perform those rituals. Then there's no Zarat. That's the logic. Further, it's thought that while the Lord no longer afflicts people's skin with Zarat, he does afflict their souls. So while not becoming visible, the soul of a person indeed can be made unclean. And in fact, in fact, theoretically, as Moses showed us and as as the Torah has shown us, Sarat begins with an unclean soul and then God takes the evidence of that unclean soul and makes it visible. But interestingly, the Jewish sages also say that in death, the Sarat of their soul not only follows them into their afterlife, it determines that they cannot exist in their afterlife with the community of the righteous dead. So they're ostracized. Now I find it fascinating how well that system of thought intersects with Christian beliefs. Because indeed, our uncleanness is only visible to God. And it has to be purified by Messiah, Yeshua, or our soul's not clean. And therefore, we can't be in God's presence. And this results in an afterlife in hell, away from the community of the righteous dead in Christ for all eternity. That's really the same formula that the sages talk about with Sarat today. Let's leave the subject of Sarat and move on to Leviticus 15. Now, let me warn you in advance. The chapter 15 is pretty graphic and explicit. It addresses the subject of human discharges, both normal and abnormal, mainly from the sex organs of males and females. And it does it very matter-of-factly. It doesn't pull any punches. It would be easy enough to skip this chapter because it can cause discomfort sometimes for people. But this is the Word of God. This is Holy Scripture. It's the Torah. It was given to us that we study and read it and know it. Okay. The first book of Torah usually taught to religious Jews is Leviticus. And chapter 15 isn't skipped over. So if six-year-old Jewish kids can handle it, we ought to be able to do it. Okay? Let's read Leviticus chapter 15. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Tell the people of Israel when any man has a discharge from his body, the discharge is unclean. The discharge is unclean no matter whether it continues flowing or is stopped. It is still his uncleanness. Every bed which that person with the discharge lies on is unclean and everything he sits on is unclean. Whoever touches his bed is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He will be unclean until evening. Whoever sits on anything the person with the discharge sat on is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches the body of the person with the discharge is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. If the person with the discharge spits on someone 
who is clean. The latter is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. Any saddle that that person with the discharge rides on will be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him will be unclean until evening. He who carries those things is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. If the person with the discharge fails to rinse his hands in water before touching someone, that person is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. If the person with the discharge touches a clay pot, it has to be broken. If he touches a wooden utensil, it has to be rinsed in water. When a person with a discharge has become free of it, he's to count seven days for his purification. Then he's to wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water, and after that he'll be clean. On the eighth day, he's to take for himself two doves or two young pigeons, come before Adonai to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and give them to the Kohen. The Kohen's to offer them. The one is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering. Thus the Kohen will make atonement for him on account of his discharge before Adonai. If a man has a seminal omission, he's to bathe his entire body in water. He'll be unclean until evening. Any clothing or leather on which there is any semen is to be washed with water. He'll be unclean until evening. If a man goes to bed with a woman and has sexual relations, both are to bathe themselves in water. They'll be unclean until evening. If a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she'll be in her state of nidah for seven days. Whoever touches her will be unclean until evening. Everything she lies on or sits on in her state of nidah will be unclean. Whoever touches her bed is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything she sits on is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. Whether he is on the bed or on something she sits on, when he touches it, he'll be unclean until evening. If a man goes to bed with her and her menstrual flow touches him, he'll be unclean for seven days. And every bed he lies on will be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, though it's not her period, or if her discharge lasts beyond the normal end of her period, then throughout the time she is having an unclean discharge, she will be just as if she is in Nidah. She is unclean. Every bed she lies on at any time while she is having her discharge will be for her like the bed she uses during her time of nidah. And everything she sits on will be unclean with uncleanness like that of her time of nidah. Whoever touches those things will be unclean. He's to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. If she has become free of her discharge, she's to count seven days. After that, she'll be clean. On the eighth day, she's to take for herself two doves or two young pigeons, bring them to the priest. At the entrance to the tent of meeting, the priest is to offer the one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering. Thus, the Kohen will make atonement for her before Adonai on account of her unclean discharge. In this way, you will separate the people of Israel from their uncleanness, so that they will not die in a state of uncleanness for defiling my tabernacle, which is there with them. Such is the law for the person who has a discharge, for the man who has a seminal omission that makes him unclean, for the woman in Nidah during her menstrual period, for the person, man, or woman with a discharge, and for the man who has sexual relations with a woman who is unclean. Okay. Chapter 15 is the final in a series of chapters discussing various aspects of clean and unclean, pure and impure. And the next chapter we'll discuss, when we've completed this one, course 16, discusses the all-important Yom Kippur ritual. Good timing, because we're getting close to Yom Kippur. Now, I tell you this 
because the five preceding chapters on uncleanness set up the necessity for the Yom Kippur rituals. Now, the Yom Kippur ritual, the yearly day of atonement, even though it's changed a little bit over time, is really primarily about cleansing the tabernacle, the sanctuary itself, from uncleanness that has been brought about because of this constant daily human contact with the tabernacle and later the temple. Many people who were were in unclean conditions and didn't know it or had willingly violated God's rules of purity by entering the tabernacle in their pure state or maybe from something accidental or maybe even a woman entered the area without warning, her period begins. There's, all, there's a thousand reasons that the temple could be defiled. Now, I think that the thing I want to do my best to establish and explain about chapter 15 which is demonstrated by the totality of the last four chapters plus this one is that entering into a state of impurity does not necessarily equate with committing a sin. Let me repeat that. We cannot and should not make unclean and sinful synonyms. Being unclean does not necessarily make a person sinful. This is an important biblical fundamental for us to comprehend. Let me demonstrate this to you using situations we previously discussed. In the Torah, Yehovah tells us that he sees the world as divided into two basic groups of people and things. Clean people and things and unclean people and things. Clean people are those who are people who are uh, who are part of the camp of Israel. Unclean people are those who are outside the camp of Israel. In general terms, Israelites are clean people, Gentiles are unclean people, but understand there are many caveats to all that that we've discussed several times in the past. So what makes Gentiles unclean and Israelites clean? Is it sin? I mean, are Gentiles inherently sinners and Israelites not? The Gentiles trespass against Jehovah's commandments, but the Israelites, Israelites don't? Do Gentiles have sin natures handed down from Adam, but Israelites have somehow or another avoided it? Well, of course not. Okay. Sinning, as do our sin natures, lead to uncleanness. The Hebrews who followed Torah had a remedy for their impurity. All others did not. Gentiles are born into a clean state, but in very short order, our sin natures are going to cause us to sin. Sin brings on uncleanness. Therefore, we can say that all Gentiles are unclean because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So unless we join Israel, we have no way to regain purity from the uncleanness caused by our sin. By accepting the work of our Savior, we are accepting the provisions of the covenant God made with Israel. By trusting Yeshua, we become Israelites from a spiritual, not a physical standpoint. So there is a remedy for both our sin 
and the uncleanness that it generates. Now that this pattern is established, that is, that it is God's choices of what defines clean and unclean and how it can or cannot be remedied, we find it carried through to these pivotal five chapters that we've been discussing. And we find a whole number of situations, such as a mother giving birth or entering her monthly cycle or contacting a dead body that cannot be in any way we can comprehend be directly tied to a commission of a sin. We find certain foods are acceptable, clean, while others are forbidden, unclean. Are some of these foods good foods and others are bad or evil foods? No. We find certain animals are considered clean for sacrificial purposes and others unclean. Are some animals good animals and other animals bad or evil animals? No. The pattern is that God made some choices. Period. And by faith, we have to accept those choices without explanation. Now, carrying these clean and unclean principles into modern Christian terminology. Were you elected by God to be admitted inside this kingdom? That by that I mean saved. Because you were inherently better than other people? Did Jehovah accept you because you just behaved better than everybody else? The principle of election to the kingdom of God, that mysterious choice that God makes among humans that theologians have tried for centuries to comprehend and explain, is simply the extension and pattern for clean and unclean. You are drawn in and declared clean because Jehovah and his sovereignty chose you. Others are not drawn in and they remain unclean because Jehovah and his sovereignty decided not to choose them. Conversely, if you have been drawn in and admitted into the kingdom as a believer, if you sin again, do you become unclean again? Well, we better hope not. Because if that's possible, that means the Holy Spirit has to leave us. He can't reside in the unclean vessel. Because regardless of the reasons for contracting uncleanness and impurity, the primary effect is that a barrier, a spiritual barrier, is erected between the unclean person and God. Nothing unclean is allowed to come into contact with the holy. So to say that a believer can be in an unclean state, in my opinion, is an oxymoron. I just don't see how you can be both at the same time. So in demonstrating all of this, the Lord has also shown us what holiness is all about. God, as holy, avoids all contact with the unclean. We, as holy, only because of our trust in Yeshua, are to follow Jehovah's example and commands and also avoid contact with that which is unclean. As holy people, priesthood actually, it's incompatible for us to come into contact with unclean things. Now in this chapter, we're going to find many reasons for a man or a woman to be declared unclean, but they did nothing wrong. Further, we're going to find 
the second great principle that we probably rather not have to deal with. And that is that not all uncleanness is the same. There are degrees of uncleanness. Some uncleanness is permanent. Some uncleanness is temporary. Some is a direct punishment from God. Some comes from normal and unavoidable bodily functions. And depending on the nature of the uncleanness, we're going to find that a quick dunk in the river will return one to purity. And at other times, you just have to wait till sunset, which ends the day, and that purifies. On yet other occasions, a very extensive and costly set of rituals has to be performed that even involves a priest. In some cases, the impurity is so severe that the person is excommunicated from their society and from their relationship with God. At other times, it's but a very short and limited separation. Now, the first 18 verses of chapter 15 concerns only males. And verse 1 hits the ground running by saying, if any man has a discharge issuing from his flesh, Bibles will use different words for exactly where that discharge is coming from. Okay. The Hebrew word used here is basar. It means flesh or body. But here it's used as a euphemism that's referring to the male organ. And when we as when we studied Surat and had a fairly detailed list of what constituted Surat, what didn't, we now get this list of what constitutes a discharge, meaning an abnormal discharge and how to recognize it as such. And there are two basic forms of it, we're told. The first is that the discharge is a flow, a liquid that runs. The second is a thicker fluid that acts to block or seal an opening. A male with this condition is unclean. And next we find that this particular kind of uncleanness can be transmitted to even inanimate objects. Specifically, whatever this male lays on becomes unclean. His bed, a mat, a cushion, it doesn't matter. Further, anyone who comes along and touches that object after the infected man has transmitted his uncleanness to it also becomes unclean. So here we have impurity going from a person to an object and then from that object to another person. The second person now, having become unclean from touching that object, becomes a carrier of impurity. A real domino effect starts here. So in some ways, this impurity from a discharge is even more infectious than Surat. Because uncleanness from Surat does not transmit itself from one person to the next. Yet while the uncleanness from a discharge is more infectious than Surat, it's not nearly as serious as the matter of Surat. A person who touches an object that the one with the discharge is laid on is purified with a wash and a wait. He's immersed in water and then he waits until sunset. No atonement sacrifices are even necessary. Transmission of the uncleanness of the affected person can also be accomplished by touching another human. And what was, and I honestly don't know if it still is, a rather gross custom of that day, if the person with the discharge was to spit on another person, that would transmit his uncleanness to his unfortunate target. 
So verse 9 goes on to tell us that not only what the impure person lies on, but what he rides on also becomes unclean. Whoever touches the object he rides on, something like a saddle, now they become unclean. Verse 11 indicates, though, that if the infected man washes his hands with water, he can now touch something or somebody else with those washed hands and interestingly, his uncleanness will not transfer to that person. Now, that's kind of interesting. Let's pause here for a second. I'm not going to go into more detail or revisit all these rules for transmitting or not transmitting uncleanness from the one with the discharge to another. But notice how complex and how many different instances with different outcomes are addressed here. I point this out because several lessons ago we discussed how we as believers were not to come into contact with unclean things, yet if we did, we don't necessarily become unclean. But conversely, how we are even instructed not to not just huddle together among ourselves as a clean and holy people and thereby avoid taking the good news to the unclean world, Rather, we're to actually seek out the unclean and love them. Somehow, when we do that, we don't contract uncleanness from them. Paul cautions us, though, that you know it's one thing to touch, say, a prostitute, for example, to lay a hand of kindness and mercy on her shoulder. And it's another to join with, to become united with that prostitute, for instance. That is, to have sex with them, or actually or to even become one of them. In the one case, we're carrying out a holy command to take the good news to everyone, and the other, we're violating a holy command to be separate from unclean things. But both involve contact with uncleanness, but it's uncleanness of different degrees. Uncleanness that has different consequences. Now, we shouldn't be confused or shocked by this seeming contradiction. Leviticus illustrates that all uncleanness is not the same, and therefore neither is the way to purity from the different kinds of uncleanness. Except that in every case, it involves living water. Mayim, Hayim. Now, we just saw in Leviticus that an infected man could by washing, in other words purifying his only his hands keep from transmitting his uncleanness to another. So it is for us that protective and cleansing barrier of living water that prevented the transmission of uncleanness of his uncleanness to another for us is Yeshua. We're covered, you see, not just in his blood, but we're just flooded with his living water. So we're immune to transmission of uncleanness as long as we remain in union with him. Yet just as with this infected man here in Leviticus, did that mean that because there was a way to keep from transmitting his uncleanness, that uncleanness suddenly ceases to exist? Of course not. Folks, listen to me. 
Uncleanness is alive and well in this world, despite all the uninformed doctrines you may have been taught. Jesus didn't abolish uncleanness, although at some point after his return he will. Uncleanness abounds on planet Earth. And where possible, as a holy people and as we're commanded, we're to avoid coming in contact with it. Certainly never are we to come into union with it and never knowingly participate with it, except in the rare cases where we are demonstrating Christ's love and grace. Now, interestingly, despite the threat of so easily transmitting his uncleanness, there is no requirement for this man with a discharge to be quarantined or even to leave his home and family. In verse 13, we're told that when that discharge stops, that his disease and therefore the cause of the impurity is gone, the steps to regaining purity are pretty mild. He must, he must wait for seven days until after he sees that these symptoms have ended. Then he bathes, washes his clothes. He takes two birds, which are the least, and most value, uh, uh, least expensive and least valuable of all possible animals, to the tabernacle with a priest, and they officiate the sacrificial rites of the birds. The original Hebrew tells us that one of the birds is used first for the hatat, the purification, Sacrifice, and the second bird is used for the Olah, the burnt offering sacrifice. Now watch this. The first sacrifice that is offered is the Hatat, which atones for the man after he's been cleansed. That is, he is brought back from uncleanness to cleanness by means of water. Then only after the Hatat is he fully restored as a member of Israel. Holy. And only a full member of, de- of uh, Israel, by definition, someone is, who is holy, is able to approach God with a thank you gift. The thank you gift is the burnt offering, the Ola. So even the sequence of the sacrificial offerings has tremendous significance to us. Unclean to clean, clean to holy. Now we can approach God. Now verses 16 to 18 deal with what I would term normal male discharges. The type which occur naturally to have nothing to do with disease or dysfunction. This also includes the results from the normal and God-ordained act of a man and wife joining together physically. So even though the man and his wife enter into the least possible state of uncleanness for a short period of time, all it takes is a wash and a wait, a bath and a wait until sunset for, their, to, to, for them to regain purity. It's a very minor state of uncleanness. Now, there are a couple of important things to know about all this. First, even though this state of ritual impurity the man and wife are in for a short time is the least severe, it is nonetheless uncleanness. Neither of them can participate in religious practices until they're clean again. In fact, the male, if he's a warrior in the Israelite army, he isn't even allowed to fight in the battle that next day. This is because when the Israelites fought against foreign armies, it was considered a holy war. You get that? No unclean person can participate 
in a holy war led by God. Okay. This is because holy war is a holy endeavor. And besides, there are strict rules set down by the Lord concerning holy warfare. Second, and most interesting, involves a question I was asked some time ago. When a male with an abnormal discharge bays, bays the Hebrew scripture says that his immersion must be fully into something called living water. Mayim Chaim. Yet under most kinds of ritual immersions, the water used can be a mixture of mostly regular water with just a little bit of living water added to it. In Hebrew, this is called mikvah mayim, mikvah water. Most mikvahs, those stone immersion pools of old, were usually filled up with well or lake water. Or water, if you're here, this was taken out at Qumran, water that had been gathered uh, from a flash flood into a cistern and then taken out of it. Usually, a small amount of living water would be added to that. However, that wasn't always the case. Some mikvahs, which were near springs and rivers, or were located in more sophisticated cities like Jerusalem, were completely filled using only living water. This was a much greater burden for the priests and the population than being able to use water that was just easily available and convenient. If a man with a discharge lived in an outlying village, which was the norm, he might have to travel some distance in order to bathe in a mikvah filled with 100% Mayim Chaim, living water. I point this out because the man with the discharge was required to bathe in 100% living water to become pure again, while the man and his wife, under just normal conjugal situations, can bathe in just regular water. So here is yet another example of this different levels of cleansing required for different levels of uncleanness contracted. Third and finally, it's helpful to notice that God put a strict and impassable barrier between the religion of the Hebrews and all other known religions. Sex was a usual and customary part of religious ritual for most of the world's religions. Usually, but not always, it was associated with uh, ritual fertility rites. Yehovah went to great lengths to bar anything regarding the means of reproduction and human sexuality from the holy grounds that he inhabited. Well, now verse 19 starts to deal with female discharges. And the first kind of discharge is a normal one a woman's monthly cycle, and she's unclean for seven days after the onset. And this condition in Hebrew is called nidah, and while it is most often associated with menstruation, it is also often used in the Bible as a catch-all term for a woman being in a state of impurity. Anyone who touches this impure woman then becomes unclean, but it's a mild level of uncleanness. Now, like the male with his abnormal discharge... A woman with her normal discharge is infectious. And she can transmit her uncleanness to anything she might lie or sit upon. 
The route to her purity involves the same rituals, washing and waiting until sunset, although the ritual washing also means you have to wash your clothes. If a husband and wife has sexual relations during this time, her impurity is transmitted to him, and he too will be unclean for the same amount of time that she is. Seven days. Now, while it's difficult to find very many corollaries between the biblical cause of uncleanness and modern science, there is one between the rules of a woman's period in fertility. I suspect, suspect that many ladies in this room probably wince at what the Hebrew woman's life must have been like, like having to regularly go through all this ritual and everything. Well, in reality, it wasn't as bad as it might seem. And I know a few Orthodox Hebrews, by the way, who don't find these rituals we're talking about as anything but satisfying and honoring. They don't regard them as a burden. It is a medical fact that in ancient times the typical Israeli woman didn't have to deal with a regular monthly cycle. First, she was usually married off very shortly after puberty. And almost immediately she would become pregnant and start giving birth to child after child. Second, it wasn't unusual for a woman to continue nursing that child until he was at least three, usually four, and very often five years of age. A nursing mother generally doesn't have regular periods during that time, so she isn't subject to that cause of ritual impurity. So the typical Western woman's experience isn't really like the typical biblical woman's experience. It was likely that while the younger girls just after puberty, dealt with this uncleanness issues month after month, the average married woman didn't. Now, in verse 25, we switch from the subject of normal discharges to abnormal discharges in females. And generally, the definition for this type of discharge is that it occurs outside the time of her cycle and it's ongoing. A woman experiencing this kind of health problem is unclean, and she remains so the entire time she's in this condition. Now, this condition must have been terrible for a woman, because she cannot touch or be touched by another person. She was not necessarily required to live outside of her home or outside the camp, but she would have been avoided because just to brush up against her put you into an unclean state. Now understand, what I'm telling you is not tradition. This is straight biblical law taken directly from Scripture. So in the New Testament, when we read the story of the woman that had an ongoing discharge for 12 years, well, this was a physically and emotionally devastated person who was also a social outcast. With what we've learned today, let's try to understand a little better now the story contained in Mark 5 where this incident of this woman with the discharge occurs. This unclean woman who has been in this same impure state for 12 years hears of this Jewish faith healer named Yeshua and she seeks him out for help. Turn to uh, Mark 5, please. Mark 5. Just a few verses. 
We're going to read 22 to 34. Mark 5. Yeshua crossed in the boat to the other side of the lake and a great crowd gathered around him. There came to him a synagogue official, Yair by name, who who, uh, fell at his feet and pleaded desperately with him, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she'll get well and live. He went with him and a large crowd followed, pressing in all around him. Now among them was a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had suffered a great deal under many physicians. She had spent her life savings, yet instead of improving, she'd grown worse. She had heard about Yeshua, so she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I touch even his clothes, I'll be healed. Instantly, the hemorrhaging stopped, and she felt in her body that she'd been healed from the disease. At the same time, Yeshua, aware that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? And his Talmudim responded, You see all these people pressing in on you and still you ask, Who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. The woman, frightened and trembling, because she knew what had happened to her, came and fell down in front of him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, Your trust has healed you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman, unclean from her discharge, poverty stricken from paying money to phony healers who didn't help her, takes an enormous risk. If she intentionally touched a man, particularly a rabbi like Yeshua, she would have transmitted her uncleanness to him. The penalty for doing such a thing in Jesus' day was for her to be put outside the camp. She could even have been executed, but that was quite rare. She knew this. Jesus knew this. Everybody knew this. But she was so confident that Yeshua was who he said he was that she risked everything to simply touch his garment in hopes of being healed of her uncleanness. By all the Levitical rules, Yeshua should have been declared unclean the instant she touched his garment. Instead, she was healed. And of course, since Yeshua is the living water of purification... There's no mention of his entering an unclean state. However, you can be sure that as word raced around the area about what had happened, it is he, Jesus, that would have been added to the ranks of the unclean as far as the religious leaders were concerned. Christ demonstrates how it is that a believer can be touched by uncleanness and yet doesn't become unclean. The story further demonstrates he did not rebuke this unclean person, who, by the way, was unclean by no fault of her own, who was searching for a way to be helped from her impurity, but instead he showed her love and mercy as she reached out in a simple but very risky 
act of faith. Now, by reading the last few verses of Leviticus 15, we know the following would have happened with that woman in the story of Mark 5. First, once her discharge ended, she would have had to have waited for a period of seven days. After that, she would be clean and able to go to the temple to make a sacrifice of a bird. This was the Hadat sacrifice. What's the name of that? The purification offering. Then she would have to use a second bird to make the bird offering, the Olah. Now, I cannot help but notice that there is no mention of a ritual washing, and this is puzzling, and I really don't have a solution for it. One possibility is that such a thing was so well understood that a ritual bath would be required that such a matter just simply isn't mentioned. We find in several biblical passages where it speaks of the sacrifices, that, it, that a kind of shorthand formula is used to talk about it. Uh, for example, a passage will speak of the requirement for a minka, that an ola is not mentioned at all, yet we know that an ola was required whenever a minka was performed. You don't do a minka without doing an ola, but as for there being no mention of a ritual immersion for the woman getting well after a long-term abnormal discharge, we simply can't be sure why that is. The final verse of Leviticus 15 is really more of a summary now of chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, chapters about ritual impurity. And it tells us in a nutshell the practical reasons why the Israelites need to scrupulously obey these purity regulations. It's because if they don't, they might defile Jehovah's holy sanctuary. And the penalty for that can be death. The wording in the original Hebrew of verse 31 is interesting. The Hebrew begins, They hit our tame. And this phrase is used here and nowhere else in the Bible. And in its most literal sense it means, You shall cause the Israelites to avoid, or you shall cause the Israelites to be separate from all uncleanness. And of course, it goes on to say that their uncleanness could defile God's sanctuary. The penalty could well be their death. So the point is, Jehovah is saying, don't become unclean in the first place, and if you do, don't even think about parking it near my holy tabernacle. Okay. Now, while this chapter ends, while this ends chapter 15, I cannot help but point out that the first words of chapter 16 are, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they drew too close to the presence of the Lord. So all these new laws were pretty fresh in the people's minds and they knew God meant it when he threatened to kill them if they defied or rather defiled his holy dwelling place which of course is exactly the threat the whole world lives under today. Okay. The requirement is a simple one. Be made clean and holy and remain that way or die eternally at God's hand. Next week we'll take up Leviticus 16.